Uh, let's get into God's word. Um, last week we said our farewell to the book of Philippians, um, and uh, just it was a great um, journey through that book. And this morning we're back in the book of Exodus, and excited about that. So grab your Bible, Exodus 32. Um, open it up. If you don't have a Bible on you, go and grab one. You're going to need it. Um, it's all about God's word this morning. I have nothing of value to give you. Um, I am coming alongside you to sit under God's word, and, uh, and, and I have no authority uh, except to proclaim the absolute authority uh, of God's truth. And so go grab yourself a Bible or open up esv.org and have that in front of you. Um, we're going to look at, uh, at Exodus 32 this morning. Um, we're going to spend the next four weeks. We're going to do Exodus 32 through, 40, uh, through, through 34. Uh, and then if you remember, we did uh, 35 through 39 already looking at the tabernacle. So from 34, we're going to jump to 40. And that'll, that'll bring us to the end of Exodus. Um, if you remember, we started in Exodus back in January uh, of 2019, and uh, boy, simpler times, hey? <laughs> but uh, um, we saw God's people, Israel, uh, living in Egypt. They had been enslaved and just viciously oppressed for 300 years, and they cried out in agony, and the Lord heard their cry. He stepped out to save his people. He, he raised up Moses as this rescuer and, and with, the, with the ten mighty plagues mirroring his power shown in creation, he unleashed on them and brought Egypt to destruction. And he showed um, not only his power over Egypt, but over the false gods of Egypt and, and just decimated them culminating in the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. Of course, Pharaoh seen as a god in Egypt and, and, uh, and then the firstborn son in every Egyptian household. Finally, um, with this country completely laid to waste, not only their children dead, but also their livestock and their fields, the whole country is just in absolute ruin and mourning and weeping. Um, Pharaoh drove Israel out of Egypt, get out of my sight, but of course it wasn't long till he changed his mind again and he pursued them out toward the wilderness. And, and in one more grand display of his power, God parted the Red Sea and the people of Israel walked across on dry ground and as the Egyptian army gave chase, he brought that water crashing down over top of them and finished off Pharaoh and his army. From there he led the people of Israel out into the wilderness toward the land that he had promised to their great-great-grandfather Abraham so many years ago. Uh, and as they moved toward the promised land, uh, they grew hungry and he fed them with bread from heaven. They grew thirsty and he gave them water out of a rock. They, they craved meat and he had quail fill the fields around them. Uh, he provided for them so richly and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And it was there at the foot of the mountain, Exodus 19, 4-6, he says this to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's it. 
This is the covenant of God that he had made to to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, now all coming to fulfillment, a great nation, numerous people, his treasured possession, the object of his kindness set apart for his glory. And it was there then with his treasured people gathered around Mount Sinai. He gave them the the Ten Commandments, Um, not in tablet form yet, just verbally. And this is the centerpiece of their relationship with him. And and this is his his gift to them. We we see the law as burdensome. They were amazed and excited. This was the, the envy of the nations around them, that they had clear directions on how to please their God, how he, to honor him, what he desired of them. But actually, so much more than that, um, as we saw going through the Ten Commandments, just the richness of each commandment as it, as it displays the character of God. It's the revelation of who he is. And the people respond with joy. And with one voice, it says, they declared, all the Lord has said we will do. And so it's sealed. This covenant relationship, this marriage-like relationship between God and his people. And he gave them the instructions then about how they would approach him, how they would have this promised intimacy with him through the tabernacle. And each element of the tabernacle, again, so rich with meaning, talking to them about how he would draw them near to himself, how he would be present with them and how he loved them, how he would cleanse them from their sin and dwell intimately with them in covenant love. And so Mount Sinai and and the the Ten Commandments is, is like the wedding ceremony. And then the tabernacle is how they, as Yahweh's new treasured bride, uh, would have intimacy with him. It's the consummation of this covenant relationship. And so that's where we've been, chapters 25 to 31, God speaking to Moses up on the mountain, giving him these instructions. Here's how to build the tabernacle. This is what it's all about. It's sacred and beautiful. It's the pinnacle of their relationship to the Lord. And then chapter 32 comes, crashing in like an unwanted guest, revolting and unwelcome. 25 to 31 is is basically outlining the details of the honeymoon. And and chapter 32 kind of pans down from the top of the mountain as if to say, meanwhile, back at the camp. And what we find here is no less than absolute treachery. Betrayal of the wedding vows. It's adultery before the wedding is even consummated. Let's look at Exodus 32 together. I want to look at verses 1 to 6 first. We'll read it just a piece at a time as we work our way through. Let me read these verses for us. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a a graving tool 
and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The theme of these chapters here through the end of the book is the glory of God. Uh, And what we see uh, at the very beginning here is the desire for glory. That's that's point one, the, the desire for glory. We are glory junkies. We're glory addicts. We can't help it. It's right at the core of who we are. Think about it. How many people travel from all over the world to stand and peer over the edge of the Grand Canyon? Or to look up at the splendor of the Rocky Mountains or the Swiss Alps? How many people pay way too much money to go over and over again to the theaters to see the next movie about a, a superhero or to see their favorite musician play on a stage or to watch pinnacle athletes as they battle for victory? Why is our culture so obsessed with, with beautiful men and, and beautiful women, with fancy cars and the best food and the best drinks, with, with success in all its many forms? What do all these things have in common? It's glory. They are earthly glimpses of glory, and we are glory addicts. We love it. We crave it. We live for it because we were created for it. We were created to to live in and thrive in and enjoy the ultimate glory, the glory of the Lord, This is right at the core of our DNA. This is all the way through creation itself. But it's also right at the core of where we go wrong. Look at what Israel does. The moment they feel insecure, the moment they begin to doubt Moses and and doubt the Lord, it says, when the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain. And if you read carefully, you'll notice um, Moses had gone up and down the mountain about six times already speaking to the Lord and bringing it back to the people. And, And none of those visits appear to last more than a day. But this trip that Moses took up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments and possibly the Book of the Covenant written on them uh, and and the, uh, the instructions for the tabernacle, This time he's up for 40 days and 40 nights. And so you can understand the people are waiting and and wondering, but they are also doubting and they grow impatient. Moses was God's appointed mediator for Israel. He was the representative of God to them. It was through Moses that God was bringing them into this new covenant. He was the officiator, as it were. Their relationship in which they would be partakers of the glory of God and his goodness and his grace. But, but they doubted Moses and they doubted God. And as soon as things don't go exactly how they expected, exactly how they thought it should go, they abandon this sacred covenant. And they go running after glory elsewhere. They surround Aaron. Say, get up, make us gods who will go before us. Gods that we can see, that we can touch. 
Fun fact, if you're wondering why it says God's plural, but it seems at least clear to me that Aaron only ever made one calf, um, the answer is nobody knows. Um, it's, a, it's a grammatical anomaly. Um, maybe it's just there to kind of draw our attention to uh, how shocking this is, um, but, but there's no good answer to that. Regardless, um, they tell Aaron, make us these gods, these gods that we can touch and see, and they, they, they threw Moses under the bus. That Moses guy, who knows what became of him? We don't know. And so Aaron obliged. He took a collection of their gold jewelry, and uh, verse 4, it says he fashioned it with a graving tool. Um, that becomes significant later. Um, probably a, a wooden calf that is overlaid with gold. And then they make this declaration. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? These are your gods. This is it. And what follows is, is actually even more shocking if we, if we see it in contrast uh, to chapter 24. Exodus 24, they had just received the, the verbal uh, Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. God's law for them, and they, told, uh, they were told that Moses alone would, would come near the Lord, and, and it says that Moses rose early and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And now, chapter 32, they're saying, no, we're done with that covenant. Who knows about what happened to that Moses, that mediator. We'll make our own mediator, this golden calf, and they rose up early, and they built an altar, and they made burnt offerings and peace offerings of their own design. And as is often the case with sin, um, this is messy. It's convoluted and confusing. Um, look, they, they say, this is a feast to the Lord, and it's all caps. This is a feast to Yahweh doesn't appear that they were intending to replace Yahweh. They're intending to replace Moses. They weren't breaking the first commandment, not explicitly, have no other gods before me. They were breaking the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves any idols. But the effect is the same. And in fact, they're so interwoven, you, you can't separate them. They abandoned the Lord. They abandoned his gracious covenant with them. And when they said, we will approach God our own way, they effectively did create their own God. A God who is not uh, invisible and eternal as Yahweh is, who is unapproachable in his glory, but a God who, who just happens to have the name Yahweh, but who is represented by a golden calf. Oh, how often we do this, church. We see this in the world around us. Oh, my God would never do this. I can't possibly follow a God who would. I like to think of a God who, you may be using the title God and thinking you're speaking of the God of the Bible, but you've created a God of your own imagination. It's an idol. And so in their desire for glory, a desire that, that in itself is good and right, it's what they were created, to, created for, they actually abandon the glory of God. They, they turn away from the only one who could fulfill that desire in them and they turn to a dead idol to fill their need for glory with earthly, physical things. And look what's going on in their hearts. 
It's a desire for immediate gratification. Right? We don't know what, where this Moses went. We don't know if he'll ever be back. We're not waiting for him. We want it now. God's plan requires patience and trust, and we want it now. Secondly, there's this confidence in their own ability to satisfy their desire for glory. God said he would bring them into his glory this way. These are the steps. This is the path. And he would dwell with them through this covenant, but they didn't like it that way. And they said to themselves, that's okay, we can make our own way to glory. We'll find our own path to God. This golden calf by our own hands, according to our own wisdom, that will be our source of glory. And it's exactly what we see in the world around us today. And if we're perceptive and honest, it's what we see happening in our own hearts. God said, come to me. In me you will find your heart's desire. In me you will find joy and joy to the full. In me you will find what you were created for, the glory that you so desire in abundance. But like Adam and Eve before us, we we don't trust God. We don't believe That if we do what he commands, if we come to him according to his way, that we'll find that ultimate joy. And so Romans 1, 21 to 23 becomes our story. Listen to these words. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you say, I've never done that. I've never made a a statue and worshipped it. The very idea is absurd, and, and I believe that you've never made a statue. But what you have done, what we have all done, is in different ways. We have looked to something other than the Lord himself. Something other than the way that he has called us to approach him. And we've said, this, this will be my glory. I will find meaning and purpose and joy in life here in sports, in my reputation, in my success, in physical pleasure, in gathering wealth or or travel, in in my, my good looks or my pursuit of the perfect marriage or the perfect family. And we hold these things up, these these otherwise good gifts from God, but we elevate them far above what they were meant to be. And in effect we declare these are our gods who have rescued us. These are our gods who have who have given us significance and meaning and purpose, who have rescued us from our lack of glory. They will be God for us. This will be my source of glory. And you know how you know for sure when you've you've done that? This is the, the, the clear sign. Anything you will sin to obtain has become an idol in your life. When I yell angrily at my kids, it shows that I have abandoned God's way of parenting as a means to finding glory in Him in order to shortcut to glory in a family that does what I want, in a family that obeys me. 
When I cheat on my taxes, I abandon God's call to be honest as a path to, to finding glory in Him in exchange for the glory of a few more dollars in my pocket. When I give in to lust or coveting, I, I abandon God's call to, to purity and contentment as a way of finding glory in Him in exchange for trying to find glory in the physical things of this world, in the beauty of the world. We've all done it. A thousand different ways we've done it. Our hearts broken in sin from birth run after glory in, in all these different ways. We're prone to look at earthly things, the quick fix, the, the physical, tangible things to satisfy that desire for glory, a desire that only God can fill. And so we need to look soberly then at this next section. All of us guilty of this, we need to see the consequence of a misplaced glory. That's point two, the consequence of a misplaced glory. And we see this right from verse 7 through to 24. We'll see it a couple of different ways. I'm just going to take it piece by piece. So first, um, let me read verses 7 to 14. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. So the Lord told Moses, as they were up on the mountain, um, you need to go down. Israel is corrupting themselves. They're breaking my covenant. They, they have turned out of the way that I have made for them. And we see the Lord's first expression of his wrath against their misplaced glory. He says to Moses in verse 10, Now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. Shocking. That's how God feels about this misplaced glory. Now, we need to, we need to put a bracket in here. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is a particularly interesting passage. It's a difficult passage because God says that he's going to do one thing, and then Moses prays that he would not, and it says the Lord relented. He didn't do it. And so, does God change his mind? Some people make a big deal of this. 
a big deal. And, and, and just to give you an idea of how messy this can get and, and, and the, the flexibility of the language here, um, the word relented uh, in Hebrew is the word neham, and the word disaster is the word ra'ah. And, and, and so this phrase, verse 14, could potentially be translated, the Lord repented of the evil that he was going to bring on them. And some would say, some would run with that and say, look, God was going to do something evil and Moses corrected him and God repented. God repents of evil. This is being taught in the church today. Now, let's be clear in case you're freaking out. Just because a word can mean something doesn't mean it should mean something. Relented and disaster are perfectly good translations, perfectly faithful translations of those words, and I think that's appropriate. Others would maybe not go that far as saying God was about to do evil. They would stick with the disaster rather than evil, but they would still argue that this passage teaches that God changes his mind. Look at it. It says God repented. God relented. He changed. He had planned one thing for Israel, and in response to Moses' prayer, he changed his mind. He changed his plan. They would say God does not have one eternal plan that he's perfectly working out through the ages. God is learning and growing, and he changes his mind. He's he's rolling with the punches. Sure, he'll bring about good. He always works things for good, but he's adjusting and adapting as he goes in response to humanity. So what do we do with this? Does God change his mind? Is that what we see here? Um, To answer briefly, no, is the first answer, no. And the second answer is uh, kind of somewhat. Okay, so let's take those one at a time. Does God change his mind? No, period. Numbers 23, 19 uses the same word, Neham. It says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. God does not Neham. He is, sorry, has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? And and, and that's double rhetorical question. That's as strong as it can be. God does what he says. He plans and he fulfills. Full stop. God is all-knowing and all-wise. It's not possible for him to to come to new information and then change and adapt. He has ordained all things in history according to his plan. That's written all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 1, he's the God who works out all things according to the purpose of his will. And Numbers says he does not change his mind. But we don't even have to go there. Just look at this passage itself. Just stay in this context and ask, what is it that God was about to do that you're saying he changed his mind from? What was it that he threatened? He threatened to break his covenant with Abraham. To put Moses in the place of Abraham and to go back on his promise to break the covenant that he had just made to this people. And so that more extreme view that God repented of evil is actually maybe more honest than that middle view. Because if God were about to do this thing, if God was actually going to carry out what he spoke, it would have been evil. Something that God is absolutely incapable of doing. It's ludicrous that he would do the thing that he said here. 
It would make God not only unwise and dishonest in making, his, uh, in making this promise that he knew he would not keep, but it would also make him a God who is not faithful, who, who can't be trusted, a God who lies sometimes. Can you imagine? And it would also be a God who is not all-knowing, as he would have to be learning things along the way, a God who doesn't even actually know the present of what is in Moses' heart and his people's heart. And so much more is at stake here than the simple question, does God change his mind? The goodness and character of God all hangs together here on this. And Moses knows that. That's the whole thrust of Moses' prayer. He says, Lord, this is impossible. You are the God who keeps your promises. You're the God who who does what you say. Would you really be unfaithful to the people whom you have rescued? And, and, And his answer is a massive rhetorical no. Would you really discredit your own glory in the eyes of the Egyptians? No. Would you really break your promise to Abraham? Absolutely never. Moses is not informing God of something he did not know. He's not actually reminding God in the way we remind a child who has forgotten something. God knows these things. But this is where that eh, somewhat kind of comes into play. And I want to be careful here. Um, God is expressing his wrath. He is declaring what Israel rightly deserves. His anger to burn hot against them and wipe them out. That that is truly, rightly what they deserve for their sin. And it says God relented. It's speaking, I think, from a human perspective. Rather than than what is happening in in, in God's mind, in his uh, internal thought process, as if we could even begin to venture to to understand or speak of what's going on there, um, but it's speaking of, of, of the perception from the human viewpoint. The road turned. It didn't move, but it turned. And so what this teaches is that God acts according to our prayers. That prayer does matter. That, that prayer does bring about turns in God's plan. Maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. God never planned to be unfaithful and a liar, but rather he planned from eternity past to spare Israel in response to Moses' prayer. Our prayers matter. Not because they change God's mind technically, not because they they give him new information or force him to do something he would not have otherwise done. Believe me, if that were the case, I would never pray again. It would not be safe. But our prayers matter because God has ordained to work out his perfect eternal plan in response to the prayers of his people. He not only planned what would happen, he planned how he would bring it about. And he planned the prayers of his people as part of that. And so prayer does matter. Not as a surprise to God that corrects him and and makes him adjust his perfect will, but they're part of that perfect will. They're part of that plan. But here's what we need to see for our purposes this morning as we look at this, uh, the consequences of a misplaced glory. That's where this strong language comes in. 
That's why this talk of, is here of this, this burning anger and this consuming of Israel. God is making a point. He's saying, this is what they deserve, Moses. Moses doesn't argue against that. He can't. They deserve destruction. That's the proper consequence of a misplaced glory. And the only reason they don't get it, the only reason God doesn't consume them, is his mercy and his faithfulness. This covenant will not be upheld by the faithfulness of the people. It will not be continued because they keep it so well. It will be kept in spite of the faithfulness of the people. Because Moses, uh, or sorry, because this misplaced glory deserves death. Let's move into the next section, verses 15 to 24. Let me read it for us. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets on which were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua, apparently he met Joshua on the way down the mountain, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not a sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it is the sound of the singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they have, are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said, let any who would have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So Moses made his way down the mountain. And when he saw for himself what the Lord had told him was going on, verses 19 and 20, now Moses' anger burns hot. And, and he does two symbolic acts. First, he takes the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he smashes them at the foot of the mountain. He breaks them, symbolizing how they had destroyed the covenant between them and the Lord. They had not upheld their end of the bargain. And then secondly, Somewhat oddly, um, he burns the golden calf and he ground it up and he put it in their water and he made them drink it. This was a way of saying to Israel, your sin is not just an exterior act. As the Lord had already said, they have corrupted themselves. It goes right to the heart, the being of, of who you are. Their sin was corrupting all of them. Verses 21 and 24, then um, Moses has this ridiculous exchange with Aaron. Um, it's striking how the Lord's anger burned hot and Moses pleaded with the Lord based on the, the grace of God and the, his faithfulness to his covenants. And now um, Moses' anger burns hot, but instead Aaron pleads with Moses saying, it's not that bad, Moses. 
He's trying to cover his sin. He's trying to make excuses, and, and they're absurd. Moses, I, I just took their gold and I threw it in the fire as if, as if maybe he was just trying to rebuke them. And then out came this calf. Moses was a miracle. What, what could we have done but to worship it? But his excuses fall utterly flat, as do ours. I think we are all guilty of making ridiculous excuses for our sin. But our sin breaks the covenant we have between us and God. It puts us outside of his grace and it corrupts right to the heart of who we are. And so verses 25 to 29, this last section shows the consequence again of this misplaced glory. Starting in verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Moses called out, verse 26, who is on the Lord's side? Who will repent? Who will come and gather around and fight for the Lord in the midst of this sinful people? And the sons of Levi gather around him. This is Aaron's people, the people who have been chosen for the priesthood. And Moses used them to bring about discipline in the camp. And and he told them to put on their sword and go to and fro throughout the camp, killing people. This is messy. Verse 28, 3,000 people died. Now, why 3,000? Why some and not others? And We don't really know, but, but I can offer a guess. Um, I, I found this at, at least curious. The only other time we see something like this, um, this grinding and drinking that, that Moses did with the golden calf uh, is in Numbers 5. Um, If a woman was suspected of breaking her marriage vows by adultery, as as Israel was guilty of breaking um, their marriage vows with the Lord by adultery, um, but if she was not caught in the act, so it's not sure, it's it's not clear, she was to go to the priest, to the Levites, and she was to make a vow before uh, the priests. And this was the test of her innocence. The, the, the priest was to take dust from the ground and mix it into some water and have her drink it. And if she was guilty, uh, it said the mixture would bring a curse on her. It would somehow show that she was guilty. This act of drinking was some kind of test that the Lord, I don't know, miraculously used to display her guilt. And again, this is speculation, but it's possible that something about drinking this water of the ground-up golden calf gave some kind of physical sign uh, of who was guilty, who was responsible for leading this uprising, or, or who was most at fault, and, and those are the ones who were killed. Maybe. Um, regardless, we read this passage and, and we recoil 
3,000 people just slaughtered. They killed them. That's horrible. That's offensive. That's shocking. But the response of Scripture is no. Sin is horrible. Sin is offensive. Sin is shocking. God takes sin seriously. Their misplaced glory was a crime worthy of the death penalty. No questions asked. Romans 6.23 says, clearly, the wages of sin is death. And not only physical death, but but Revelation 21.8, along with numerous other passages in Scripture, speak of this eternal death, namely hell. Listen to this. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's what sin deserves. That's what idolatry deserves as we look at at finding glory in other things rather than God. Your sin and mine This is where we belong. So then, what hope is there? If we're all guilty of this, and we are, and if all have sinned and and fall short of the glory of God, and, and our guilt here deserves death, which it does, where do we go from here? Well, verses 30 to 35, we see the hope of a mediator. Let me read, starting in verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses turned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin." But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. There's a strange mixture through these verses of mercy and judgment. Moses told the people, I'll I'll go up to the Lord. Remember, he is their their mediator, their representative uh, before the Lord. And and perhaps, maybe, there's, there's hope that I can make atonement for you, that I can cover your sin, that I can find a way to have you forgiven. And... And, if, and, and he comes before God and he pleads again, forgive this people, overlook their sin. But this time, the Lord answers, no. Moses says, if you won't forgive their sin, then blot me out, take me instead. And this phrase, blot me out of your book, it was common in those days for every city, every tribe to keep a book, a scroll, a record of all their inhabitants, all of the members. And so um, when someone was born, they were added to the book. And when someone 
died or moved away and was no longer part of that, that tribe or that city, they would be removed or blotted out from the book. Moses knew the consequence for sin. You, you cannot be in the Lord's book. You can't be on his register, on the role of, of his people as a sinner. You'll be cut off. You'll no longer be part of his treasured possession, his precious covenant people. And so Moses offers himself as a sacrifice in their place. But the Lord declines. The Lord doesn't approve. Verse 33, he says to Moses, no. No, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. They will pay for their own sin. No, Moses You can't take their place. But then the next words don't make any sense. No, Moses, you can't take their place. But then he says, go and lead the people to the place about which I have spoken, the promised land. And behold, my angel shall go before you. So he says to Moses, no, I won't forgive them based on your taking their place, but I will bring them to the promised land. I will carry them through in my covenant love and fulfill my promises. What's going on? It's strange. Verse 35 then follows the Lord sent a plague on the people because of their false worship. And we know nothing about this plague except there what is written in in verse 35. Uh, And so there is some continuing discipline for this sin. And so simultaneously we see the the mercy of God and the justice of God, but in the middle of it is this glimpse of hope. There's there's something in the bigger narrative of Scripture that that, that this just can't be overlooked. From this passage we see that, that right from the beginning, built into this system, this plan of God in this first covenant that God made with Israel through Moses, First is that no one will be made right with God by their own goodness. The law of Moses, the old covenant, was not about law-keeping. They couldn't do it. They failed time and time again. No one would be made right with God by the purity of their own heart or their obedience to the law. It was impossible. God's covenant and his love um, was based on his faithfulness to sinners. But secondly, embedded in the middle of this covenant, right from the very beginning is this idea, this hope that sinners could be forgiven. That one man could stand in the place of many. Offer himself as a substitute. That atonement for sin, that the covering, the wiping away of sin and its death penalty could be accomplished by one man being blotted out of God's book, cut off from his love and his mercy and kindness in order that the rest might be forgiven. Now Moses was a mediator between God and his people, but he was not that mediator. That was something that even Moses, whom whom God had chosen and raised up, who spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend, even Moses could not fulfill that role. But the plan of God, this covenant of God, would come to its fullest conclusion when the new and greater mediator would come. One man, 
but he was not just a man. A man who who could die for his own sins, but also was God himself. Thus, he would have no sin of his own for which to die. And who then, because of both his divinity and his sinless perfection, could in fact say to the Lord, blot me out of your book instead. Count me as guilty that the sinners might go free. Jesus didn't break the old covenant. He didn't undo the law of God. He didn't somehow undermine or subvert God's justice or counteract God's wrath. It was exactly what God had planned from the beginning. He fulfilled that covenant perfectly and beautifully. And he himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He kept it perfectly in his life on earth, and then he brought it to its fullest completion, saying the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, how was God able to say to Moses, no, you cannot die for their sin, and yet they were not consumed. How is it that that even though they were faithless and they broke every part of their covenant with God over and over and over again, that he was still faithful? He still fulfilled his promises completely because God was looking down the corridor of history and forgiving them based on the sacrifice of Christ as they walked in faith in him for forgiveness. And how is it that we, who are just as guilty as they, who have run after the glory of this world in a thousand different ways, who have taken earthly things and raised them up to the place of God, could ever expect to have life with him, who could ever hope for anything other than to be rightly forsaken by him and receive death as we deserve? Because Jesus on that cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is that he might receive us, that he might not forsake us as we deserve. Because the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God, and the death reserved for us was poured out on him. That's the glory of God on display. Invite the worship team.